I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Cons Minds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 63, we continue our series on reading leftist books by reading maybe the most recognizable, and that is The Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, published in 1848. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels were German philosophers and political scientists, best known for the formulation of the philosophy known as Marxism, the basis of all modern communist movements. Both were born to middle-class families shortly after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, Marx in 1818, Engels in 1820. Both men were influenced by Hegel while at school. Marx received his PhD from the University of Jena in 1841, while Engels withdrew from the University of Berlin without a degree around the same time. Marx and Engels first met in Paris in 1844 and became close friends and collaborators. The two moved to Brussels in 1845, where they published their most famous work, The Communist Manifesto, in 1848. They worked with German communists during the tumultuous revolutions of 1848, but fled to London when those efforts failed. They lived there and continued to write, including the three-volume work Das Kapital, the first volume of which came out in 1867. Marx died in 1883, and Engels published the second and third volumes in 1885 and 1894, and he died the next year. All right, so these these men, Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, are writing during the Industrial Revolution, and so they're seeing some things, extreme poverty, horrendous working conditions, disease, high mortality rates, really unhappy conditions for workers. And so much of this book does make sense, I think, coming from that perspective, seeing some of the, the devastation that in, in the Industrial Revolution is, has brought about. I think the focus really of this book is on class struggle, is what they call it. They say the history of all hitherto existing societies is the history of class struggles, oppressor and oppressed which stand in constant opposition to one another, they say, carrying on an uninterrupted fight throughout all of history. In history, we find almost everywhere a complicated arrangement of society into various orders. And what they're seeing now, in 1848, society splitting into two great hostile camps, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Bourgeois society has established new classes, new conditions of oppression, new forms of struggle in place of the old ones. And I think it's worth, at the outset here, talking about a few of these vocabulary words that they bring to us. Mm-hmm. Um, bourgeois and bourgeoisie. What they're, I think they're ref- referring to, and I, and I want you to kick in your your thoughts too. But basically, this is the capitalist class who are not the aristocrats, but they're the business owners. They own most of society's wealth during the time. They're who we would call the rich. It's basically the upper upper middle class, those that are not the absolute mega rich, but those who 
control most of the the businesses and so forth. That's yeah, and right. here's here, here's where I think it's it's also helpful to remember that Europe has this even still a different class structure than America because yeah we we would call that the upper class in America, people who own the things have the money, the capital, uh, people who they the way they get their income is by owning things, not necessarily by laboring. In Europe, that's still kind of middle class. That's why they use these words bourgeoisie, because the upper class in Europe was determined by blood. Like yeah, you could yeah. you could buy in and after a few generations they might accept you if you got a title or something. But it wasn't it's not like here. So I think that's why that term I think bourgeoisie is like the German burger, which is like townspeople. I think that's how it had it's originated. And I I should have looked up that etymology before we started, but basically it's not, um, it's not the aristocracy, like you said, but it's people who by this point were richer than the aristocracy for the most part, because the aristocracy might have lots of farmlands, but these were the guys who were making, who were building the factories, digging the mines, you know, owning the ships that were channeling goods all over the world to new markets, new colonies, all that sort of thing. So the, mm-hmm. these were the folks who owned basically, and then you're, and your proletariat are the ones who work for them. Yeah, so they say the proletariat is the lowest stratum of our present society. So that would be the the poor, poor. They And they distinguish that from what they call the lower middle class, which would be, they say, small manufacturer, shopkeeper, artisan. The All these fight against the bourgeoisie to save from extinction their existence as fractions of the middle class. So we have the aristocracy, who they're really not addressing here but then the bourgeoisie which you just described and then the middle class which is or lower middle class which is these manufacturer shopkeepers that sort of thing but the proletariat is the poor the lowest stratum these these are the folks that communism is aimed at because as marx will say the proletariat alone is really a revolutionary class they're the ones who are getting they're the the wage labor they're the ones who are being exploited. And I, th- I think it's it's also important to notice that they're not really talking about vagrants, beggars, like the truly have nothing class. The proletariat have jobs, but the way Marx and Engels are telling it, the competition and the centralization and the mechanization of industry has made it such that their wages have gotten forced down to such a level that they're barely surviving. So, I mean, it's still quite poor, but it's, it's, it's people who have jobs, mm-hmm. which make it kind of, you know, it's, they're the ones doing all the work and they're in Marx and Engels telling, and, you know, everybody else is getting rich off of their labor. That's, that's what's really, um, that's what's motivating. That's what defines them as a class. Right. And they, they characterize it as wage labor. So they say the essential condition for the existence and sway of the bourgeois class is the formation and augmentation of capital. The condition for capital is wage labor. Now let's get a definition of capital. I take them to mean cap- capital we think of now as, we think of capital these days as a building or you know, a very expensive piece of equipment. But I think what they're getting at in, in this uh, understanding is basically capital is wealth that's generated by the workers. So if whatever that's created or manufactured or generated by the wage labor, that's capital. And so therefore what we're going to talk about here and what, 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 what they dive deep into is that the, the bourgeois class, the bourgeoisie, what they do is exploit wage labor and that exploitation 
creates this this good or is creates this something that can be traded uh, some sort of a commodity maybe that can be traded in uh, in the marketplace and that is capital and so all the profits that are created by the by the wealth that's generated by these workers is in their minds pure exploitation you think does that sound like i have it right yeah i think so and i think it's it's also kind of gives ex- the word exploitation its modern sense like when you you hear that word on the left a lot it used to mean you know if you owned land you exploited it and that was what you were supposed to do with it they apply it to labor which has become in this industrial age kind of a market good itself and they get into that and that's why prices just as prices got forced down by industrialization price of labor also got forced down by you know the, the competition and, and things like that so yeah when they talk about exploitation it that sounds familiar to the modern ear because we have been shaped by this in a way, but that wasn't originally a word that meant anything bad. It was, it was more like take the thing and use it for what it's meant to be used for. Yeah. Now we would use the word development probably. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, uh, it's like, like when they, like when they call government spending investments, you know, it's like we, we change the words a lot, but yeah, (laughs) in this, in this case, this was, this is a change that's really had an effect on us to this day. All right. So what Marx and Engels see is this modern industry, this industrial revolution that creates masses of laborers crowded into the factories and then small tradespeople and shopkeepers that just get completely swamped by competition in, when they're in competition with large capitalists, the, the bourgeois class. And mach- the machinery that's being created just obliterates, they say, all distinctions of labor and nearly everywhere reduces wages to the same low level. Now, if that isn't, if we don't have echoes of that today, I mean, in Andrew Yang, so and so forth. I mean, I, I don't. I mean, it's this is a this was written in 1848, but it might as well have been written last week in, in so many ways. But so the unceasing improvement of machinery makes their livelihoods more and more precarious. As a result, uh, these folks, uh, the proletariat, are stuck in this position of, of wage labor only. Wage labor rests exclusively on competition between the laborers. So they're they're basically in competition and at war with one another, even though they they have these uh, terrible working conditions. The advance of industry is due to competition. They say the development of industry cuts from under its feet the very foundation on which the bourgeoisie produces and appropriates products. So you have this what we would call today creative destruction, hmm. but at that time, this is more or less the first time that anything had been creatively destroyed. destroyed. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it isn't, I mean, there are definitely echoes of this going on today, like what he's talking about. I take some comfort in that because, you know, just as Marx was saying that the worker was going to be made obsolete by mechanization, here we are saying the same thing 150 years later. It's like, it's still not true. You know, I mean, there's still always new jobs get created. That's why the Yang thing never resonated with me. I mean, there's, the economy is always changing and, here he's saying, oh, they're going to mechanize everything. There'll be nothing left for people to do. But, you know, there still was, you know, years later. And it wasn't because of communism, because it failed in the places that Marx thought it would succeed. So, I mean, it failed everywhere, but it didn't even try in most places. He thought, it would, you know, like they advanced industrial nations of the West. Mm-hmm. But I do like this, um, when he talks about how this system grew, this bourgeois capitalism uh, by, you know, 
it, it needed to keep feeding, it needed to keep growing, you know, more markets, more resources, more. So that's kind of fueled colonization that spread around the world, you know, it forced trade into different markets. And he said that it kind of every, everything it touches, it turns to itself because he said, even the most barbarian nations are drawn in, you know, every nation is made to accept the bourgeois mood of production. That sounds exactly what um, Patrick Deneen says about liberalism. Yeah, it really is. You know, it's like, here's a system that it's not really spread by force, but it is like a, like a mental virus that is every place it goes, it changes things. It terraforms societies. And uh, I guess we're still, you know, he talks about how it, 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 it's writing out local distinctions. Now there's, you know, only one law of trade, only one kind of thing, you know, there's just supply demand factories, workers, and it's getting to be the same everywhere. That is, I mean, that's a lot like some of the complaints you hear on the right today. Mm -hmm. So as we'll see, his solutions are different, but. (laughs) Right, exactly. But I think you're right because he he has been pointing something that that is really interesting. And I I think, like you said, in a number of our books, we've, we've had this discussion. The free market has this insatiable hunger for growth. I mean, and here's what here's what Marx says. The bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production and therefore or, and thereby the relations of production and with them the whole relations of society. And I mean, that sounds a whole lot like Deneen. Really, what we're saying is, it, it, I mean, Deneen will say the free market has a solvent effect and turns it into a, everyone and everything into an uh, into uh, a monolith. But mm. it does have it does have the effect of I mean creative destruction or or whatever you want to call it it does have the effect of turning things upside down and and I think you and I or at least certainly I would say that's a downside with huge upside yeah <laughs> I mean um, but he says the need of a constantly expanding market for its products chases the bourgeoisie over the whole face of the whole surface of the globe and here we are. In 2020, talking about how the bourgeois class, <laughs> the upper middle class, the, the owners of businesses, where do they want to go? China, because it's the biggest market, you know, in the world. And so, and so we're having the same conversation. Exploitation, they say, has destroyed all old established national industries, dislodged by new industries. In place of the old wants, satisfied by the production of the country, we find new wants requiring for their satisfaction the products of distant lands. I mean, that's, uh, that's consumerism. And I think that mm-hmm. there's a lot of agreement on, on the right and left. Well, there's a, there's a lot of agreement on the right with uh, the traditionalist conservative right with, with this argument that the, that Karl Marx is making that it, it, it breeds like a, uh, an avarice, you know, a greediness and we need more and, and uh, we need better and, and consumerism. I mean, there is a downside to it. Um, yeah, and all this, all this, all the stuff he's getting at is, I think, so many of the different writers we've read over the past few years are talking about this same thing. The industrial revolution happened, and it uprooted everything, and we're still figuring it out. And you know, that was new to Marx. It's but it's old to us, but it's still happening. It's still. We read Carlson's book, you know, about the the uh, cottage workplace. I forget the title. He was getting at that same thing. He was like, we had a system that people were used to for hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, it was feudalism and then it was kind of fading into 
the Renaissance, but it was, it was a system that was local, you know, and then we got all this new stuff, railroads, telegraphs. Now we're with the internet. Everything's everywhere. Yeah. You're talking, you know, like he's talking about even demands change, which shouldn't, right? I mean, people, people want what they want, right? But then once they're introduced to a product from overseas and, oh, wow, you know, it's great to have an orange. You know, this is nice. And that requires the whole trade in it that require, you know, if you want a banana, you've got to trade with Central America. You know, if you want tea, you've got to trade with China, you know? So it's, 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 it was funny to me reading this, that, you know, these were new thoughts when he was writing them or they, I keep leaving out angles. He was there too. You know, when these, when these two were writing these thoughts, this was kind of a new thing. And a lot of people were still figuring it out, but we're still figuring it out. And it's, I don't know, we're getting any closer, but we certainly have a lot, a variety of answers. Well, very true. And I think that we're experiencing our, our own revolution with the, with the internet and the information age and now social media. I mean, that's, to me, that's another revolution that mm-hmm. we're still trying to figure out and getting a whole lot wrong for a long time, I, I yeah. suspect. Right. Okay. So their focus though is on the, on the class struggle and class distinctions because what they're really going to, they're, they're really going to place the blame not on the people writ large who want to, who want to buy and trade and that sort of thing, who actually want to drink the tea, but place the blame on the, the bourgeois class, the bourgeoisie who are the ones who are profiting from it um, in their telling. And so the proletariat, these laborers who must sell themselves piecemeal are a commodity the workman becomes an appendage of the machine. The work of the proletarians has lost all individual character or charm for the workman. The price of a commodity and therefore also of labor is equal to its cost of production. Now that we can set that aside, that's their, their, um, labor theory of, of, of value. Yeah. That's, but, uh, we should come back to that because that is important. So quickly before that, let's, let's just say, Fast forward to now. So I I read this and in the context of Oliver Twist, you know, and mm. uh, David Copperfield and Scrooge McDuck and so forth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does. It makes sense that these guys are just furious at what they're seeing and yeah. want to try to come up with a solution. I want to ask us, though, like fast forward to today. Are, are laborers, I mean... First of all, very few people actually labor because <laughs> yeah, not in even, in, even in my neighborhood, yeah. there's like all these developments, you know, there's a huge housing boom, you know, where I'm living right now. And, and so there's a lot of laborers, but they're all running machines, you know, uh-huh. and none of them are really doing what you'd call backbreaking work. The machine is, and I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's the most exciting work in the world, but you know, they're, they're laying footings and foundation with, with, a a, a giant, um, cement truck you know you know they're not really actually down there you know digging dirt themselves so it almost seems like the attitude has fast forwarded today like the marxists of today instead of talking really about the the proletariat and their terrible working conditions they just really just focus on wages right and or focus on on uh you know who's who's being exploited as far as like you know, race and gender and so forth. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're right. And it, it's, you hear people who call themselves socialists today talking about the middle class as who they want to help. I mean, and that really, that's not Marxist, but it also shows the success of capitalism is that most people 
in this country and in other countries like us are middle class. Mm-hmm. There are very few doing the kind of labor they were doing in Marx's day, that dangerous, very low paid, you know, I, I mean, like it was decades after a couple decades after this book that they built the transcontinental railroad. Right. And, you know, where people were dying on that every day because you know, it's, it was dangerous work and they didn't really care about the workers safety at all. Just had to get it done. And, you know, there were the big steel plans in those days where, you know, it would happen, you know, there was no OSHA, you know, it would happen pretty often. Somebody would get burned. And when you get burned in the steel plant, you get, you get dead. So I, I think looking at that compared to what we have now, it's a completely different world. And what, for the most part, our world is made better by doing the opposite of what Marx and Engels wanted. Yeah. And it's really like in fast forward today, the, the work is really different too, because most, most people that we would say are lower class are probably working in a service job of some sort. Mm-hmm. Cause to be honest, if you're working construction, you're probably making 20 or $25 an hour, which is decent. I mean, it's not, it's not, you're not rich or anything, of course, but yeah, it's good money you're, though. You're doing pretty, pretty okay. And like you I said, bet. it's pretty steady lately. Yeah. And very, yeah, these days, very steady versus working at McDonald's where you're only going to make seven fifty an hour or something to start, or, you know, you work there for several years and you're making 11 bucks an hour or something like that, or, you know, $18 as a, an assistant manager or something like that. I think it's interesting that, like you said, that it, it really is the free market that has brought us to this point. So even looking back and thinking, well, these guys, these guys are making a good argument for something has to change. And that does make sense. It did change though. And, and, uh, you know, fast forward today, I think there's still some, you know, we should still return and, and reevaluate all the time. Well, you know, what we're, what we're facing, but like our, our podcast episode, um, a couple times ago, you know, the folks that were this proletariat kind of forgotten man in America, used to be represented, you know, part of the New Deal coalition is now, well, now a lot of them are Republicans. So it's, it's really interesting how there's been a shift from, well, we're not going to focus on their wealth or how poor they are. Instead, we'll, you know, we're going to, we're going to refocus our attention as Marxists. We're going to refocus our attention on, on other uh, exploitations in society. And, and, and right now, uh, obviously the biggest one is, is, you know, race and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, and that's kind of wild too, because later in this book he talks about how one of the complaints against communism is that it destroys nations and nation and nationality. And he said the worker has no nation. You know, he's he, he's just a worker. He's so oppressed he doesn't have these higher you know attachments. And not only is that not true, as we I mean, you know, when World War One started, socialist parties in every country were voting war credits, you know, to fight each other. So I mean, obviously it was there was not the international cooperation of workers that Marx imagined. But I mean, now, you know, the modern, whatever wave of Marxist we're on now is looking precisely to those things that Marx said are irrelevant to the worker and saying, Mm -hmm. no, that's the real relevant, you know? So it's weird that, that they even still kind of revere Marx because they only have, the only thing they have in common is an interest in a class they see as downtrodden, which a lot of people have an interest in that. So it's it's strange that they even still call themselves communists because what's in this book is so different from what a Marxist, even an Antifa type, real hardcore Marxist is saying. 
is is a lot different from what you're you're going to read in this pamphlet. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get let's get back to the the labor theory of value. They're going to argue that what the labor that's put into a product is the value of the product. Yeah, and I mean I think that that has some some problems in a number of different areas. I mean, there's a point to be made there that hey that they should they should get they should get paid um, a fair wage. It's also the mm-hmm. case though that other elements go into the creation of a of a sh- of a ship, you know, or of uh, a tea factory or or whatever. You know, you have to have the money to put up in the first place to build it. If somebody has to take on the risk of losing everything and as we know like you know 19 out of 20 small businesses fail you know mm-hmm. and so you have to take the risk and and then these days and, and i'd love to hear what you think about all this but and, and in these days i think it even has less application because what is what is the cost of creating a marginal blu-ray disc i mean it's like cents it's pennies yeah. so the actual construction of that is really not worth hardly anything and you know your your labor but the value of it is the intellectual property right so the 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 ip that went into it is that's not really labor and and yeah there, there are there's some labor involved but you're really talking about like ideas and and thoughts and kind plans of capital. And risk. yeah 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 he kind of he really whiffs on this and this is where the book starts to stop making sense is you know i mean they go through all this about how markets have done all these things and then he forgets that there's a market in goods you know, right. like a, a thing could take, you know, it could take a ton of work to make something. It doesn't make it any good. You know, I mean, it's like things are worth what people will pay for them. So if it only takes a little work, but you can sell it on your Etsy shop for a hundred dollars, then that, then it's worth a hundred dollars, you know? And even if you only put $2 worth of labor into it, it's like the, like the old joke about the dog food company where the guy is saying, CEO says, look, we've got the best radio ads. We've got the best television ads. We've got the best print ads. Why is nobody buying our dog food? You know, why are we in third place? <laughs> and then the consultant says, well, the dogs don't like it. <laughs> yeah, and It's true. Yeah. You could put all that. You could, you could put a ton of labor. You could double your workforce. It doesn't double the value of your product. It's, it's a counterintuitive thought that it is counterintuitive for a reason. You know, like it just people feel this way though. Like when, you know, you, Somebody offers to buy something, you know, like on eBay or whatever, and they say oh, they offer a low price, and you say, "Well, I worked really hard on this." Yeah, but I still don't want to pay more than three dollars for it. You know, that's, right, right. That's what prices are, and, I, and the fact that he doesn't get that kind of means that everything that is built on that doesn't make sense either. And so, what they build on it, and let's get into this, but what they build on it basically is to say this is a problem that needs to be solved. It's yeah. not fair that they're not getting as much value out of the product as their labor. So therefore, we're going to demand that they get the cost. So, you know, it it took this much work for me to plant the corn. So, by galley, it's going to the uh, the ever the consumers must pay this much in order to receive it, you know. And uh, it's just kind of backwards because obviously anyone who who has any sense of human nature knows that a black market would be created in about five seconds you know because yeah things like you've said on a prior podcast we can call it capitalism or we can call it this is how people behave in the real world you know they exchange mm-hmm. and i'm going to give you something 
in return for what I think is worth more than what I just gave you, or at least I want it more. And you want my money more than you want the thing that you're giving me. And so as a result, we create this exchange. And what they're going to say is, no, what we need is the government involved. So let's hop to that. Yeah. And how far they go into this abolition of private property is confusing too. So they say they don't want want to take the wage laborer's wage away. They're talking about the difference between capital and property. Okay. So what is capital? It says capital is a collective product that requires collective action of its many members to be set in motion. When therefore capital is converted into common property, into the property of all members of society, personal property is not thereby transformed into social property. It's only the social character of the property that's changed. It loses its class character. That just, I mean, that, that, that doesn't seem like a real distinction. You know, I think he's trying to say, we're not going to take like your furniture. You can still own that. You, you know, you can still own the shirt that is on your back. But your house, well, and then, you know, they will say most proletarians don't own their houses anyway. But, you know, yeah, so, yeah we're going to take that. You know, this is why it didn't catch on with the peasantry because they actually had things. They didn't, want, they didn't want to give up. Yeah. Yeah. The industrial, you know, the, the urban poor working in the factories had very little that they owned except, you know, the the few possessions that were in their homes. That's why, I mean, this was a, that's why this was a philosophy aimed at industrial workers. That's why it's weird that it started in Russia. I mean, the first place it succeeded because there weren't that many of them there, you know, and, and the peasantry who he, he kind of puts them as a separate class that's trying to, that is reactionary and trying to preserve the old order. Yeah. I mean, some of them were tenant farmers, but they might own their own cottage. They might own the animals that are in their, barnyards you know they so it he, he acts he says that you know nine nine and ten people in the bourgeois society don't have any property anyway so there's nothing to take i don't know if that's really true but also it's it's also relies on this weird distinction between property and capital which is i i don't think really holds up in any you know rigorous way mm-hmm I mean, let's assume that it was true then. Let's just assume that it yeah. was true. He says private property is already done away with for nine-tenths of the population, like you said. If that was true then, then the argument they're making, okay, he says, they say the st- distinguishing feature of communism is the abolition of bourgeois property. So we're mm-hmm. going to let you keep yours and we're going to abolish bourgeois property. And in fact, even if we took all the property, it wouldn't matter because nine-tenths of the population doesn't even have property. And... So if what what we're saying again, this is the theory of sort of the Soviet Union and and uh, Maoist China, and of mm-hmm. course we've seen where that went. But I, I also, when I was reading this, all I could think of is the contemporary situation of of the the ninety nine percent and saying, all right, well, we're just going to abol- we're just going to take away the property of those rich. You know, we're going to take away the bourgeois property of today. And it shouldn't matter to anyone else because they're owning most of the money anyway. So we're going to turn around and give it. <laughs> yeah, they just kind of moved up the level of what counts as bourgeois property. You know, like a Marxist today wouldn't say we're going to take your house. You know, I mean, but may, maybe there's somebody out there saying that, but they wouldn't say we're going to nationalize cars. But I think to a, an urban laborer in 1848, owning his own horse would have been pretty wild. Like most of them probably didn't. Mm-hmm. 
they you know they walk to work or maybe there were there were some early street cars in those days that sort of thing so i mean yeah because we are so much more prosperous i guess yeah with the the uh, 99% types we're just going to define it up and say all right we're going to seize capital stock because who owns that right only rich guys even that's not totally true because of the way pensions work nowadays but and esops and these other plans but it is a kind of rebuke to the world that Marx describes and the solutions he describes just to say that, well, we didn't do any of what you wanted, but what's happened is now a lot of the people do own property. You know, you could not say today that nine tenths, you couldn't even say that one tenth of people don't own anything. You know, I mean, some people are, at least not in America. Yeah. No, right. I mean, there, there are still places like this for sure. People own things now and they own things that would be called capital under these fuzzy definitions. Yeah, so you can you can understand the instinct of saying, "All right, here's here's these robber barons, and they have so much money, and they control all the oh, back yeah. then the means of production." These days, I don't even think you could say means of production because it's an eighty percent service sector. But but um, okay, you understand the instinct. But then you fast forward to today, you you take a look at the societies like the Soviet Union, like North Korea, that kind of put this theory into effect, and they crumbled. And you, and then you look at those uh, Western countries that that followed the free market and, and went that direction, and the proletariat is you can't even call them proletariat because uh, there's there's more to go that's for sure, but there's not a lot of real legit poor at least not in America right I mean you, you there are definitely people who are doing better than others, but you have a lot of folks that because of income transfers and and so forth but i mean people are doing okay they're surviving they have food to eat they have they have uh smartphones and cable tv and so forth and that i'm not i'm not saying that that should be how it is that you have the mark zuckerberg super rich and and then uh and then we should feel happy about the little guy who's on welfare and or the single mom sort of thing there there are things we can do for sure mm-hmm. but but what I'm talking about is the fruits, right? By their by, the fruits you should know them, and <laughs> and the the fruits of the free market is that the proletariat went from the from live from squalor to living a, a lifestyle that obviously is better than than the kings of 1848. I mean, and it's not even yeah. Quote. And there's there's such a reaction when people say that anymore. So everyone wants to only point out the bad, and if you say anything about the good, then it's like, well, you're just ignoring the bad. No, like like you said, there's there's bad stuff going on. You know, things aren't perfect. Some folks don't have as much as they should. But there has been so much progress since since 1848 or since 1776 or wherever you want to draw the line. 1619, if that's your thing. You know, things are so much better. And it's not wrong to point that out while also saying, yeah, but there's also a few things that, you know, need fixing. You know, maybe we could still tweak it some more. But I think also that it is against the uh, the mindset of a, of a, of Marx and Engels to say to fix a little bit but keep what we have well, just to skip ahead a bit in the, in the part 3 of this he talks about the different sort of early socialist movements that preceded their own ideas and a lot of them were sort of like doing social reforms but only to alleviate the damage of it 
of industrialization, you know, still to keep the bourgeois system, but to make it a little kinder. Now, to me, that sounds good, <laughs> right? It's like, like helping people. Like this is why Marxists hate charity because it <clears throat> they say it props up the system instead of just blowing it all up. But what if it actually helps people? Like that, it's weird. It's weird to read ideological stuff that's this ideological, where they, you know, the communists won't want to make anything better unless it's through communism. Everybody else is, I think most folks will say, well, if this actually works, sure, we'll try that. You know, if this helps people and it doesn't hurt others, okay. You know, like the, like Bismarck's state socialism that came in the 1880s, and then a lot of countries adopted that too. The sort of, they, they saw the same problem, and they said, all right, well, we don't need to blow everything up and confiscate everyone's property and execute all the kings. Let's just, uh, how about have like old age pensions? And that, that helped a lot. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah, yeah. You know, Bismarck started that and then we, we copied it in this country with social security. And it's like, yeah, that's a, that helps a lot that, you know, that means old folks aren't destitute when they're too old to work. That's, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Communists don't like that because it just uh, makes capitalism more palatable. But so, yeah. so his discussion of what he calls socialistic bourgeois, which I think is what you were talking about. And then also yeah. that's what he calls critical utopian socialists. I don't know the difference between these two things, but basically he, he, it, for him, this is a complete takedown of what I would today call like the technocratic left, mm-hmm. you know, the yeah kind of the Bill Clinton, you know, and, and, and Hillary Clinton and, and even Obama, uh, you know, just like if we turn this dial and move this lever and it's something that you and I have talked about quite a bit, then we can we can help people and create uh, situations that improve society and that sort of thing. I mean, he for him, for Marx and Engels, like, they just have nothing but disgust for people who think that way. Yeah, <laughs> like, if you don't want to burn it down, they don't want to hear it. Yeah, and to boot, you know, they give us the communist agenda, and this is what it is: abolish countries and nationalities, you know, abolish all religion and all morality. Abolish property in land. Create a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Hey, we've adopted that in America. Yeah. Abolish the right of inheritance. Confiscate property of all immigrants and rebels. You know, Stalin certainly did that. Yeah. Centralize credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank. You know who does that right now? China. And, and you know what it means? They just carry heavy debts because their banks are... <laughs> Yeah. The banks suck, so so yeah, they're, all they're doing is just carrying their their uh, their huge uh, liabilities. All right, uh, centralize the means of communication and transport in the hands of the state. You know who else does that? China. They don't have Facebook. You can't do a Google search there. How cool would that be? We've kind of nationalized a lot of transport here, though. I mean, you can't get a passenger train that's or a bus that's not owned by the, some element of the state. But you can drive a car, and that's nice. Yeah, I mean, it, when it, they are private companies, though, that are highly regulated. But you're right; like the the high regulation might as well be centralization. But but that is a little bit different than than state owned uh, airline. That, yeah, and state owned charges X Y Z. You know, regardless yeah, and state of state owned communications. No that's that's a whole yeah, like you're saying, that's a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. All right. Extension of factories and instruments of production owned by the state. Bring the bringing into cultivation of wastelands, the improvement of soil in accordance with a common plan. So, what we need is centralized plans so that we can 
map all this out and everything works perfectly, you know, equal oh. obligation to all work, which I'm, sh- which totally works, by the way. <laughs> there was, Everyone has an equal obligation. So they're totally going to raise their hand and say, I want to be you oh, know, yeah. garbage, man. There was actually a bunch of Soviet plans that follow that point number seven there about uh, bringing into cultivation wastelands, et cetera. And they just wrecked everything. It's like they, <laughs> they drained things that shouldn't be drained. They dug, they, or they would dig a canal in the Arctic where, you know, hundreds would be dying. Every oh, the day. whole they, country's a super fun site. Yeah. It, they ruined a lot of stuff in, with like these kind of big, massive projects. So they, this is, yeah, they tried it. They, they were, they were following the plan here. So this one also jumped out to me. A combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries. Obviously, Mao read that and took it to heart. I mean, we mm-hmm. had that great, great leap forward, which was an absolute disaster and ended up killing tens of millions of people. Yep. Abolition of the distinction between town and country by a more equitable distribution of the population over the country. Over the country. Obviously, that's also part of the great leap forward. Yeah, they, so, did, that in, I, they did that in Russia, too. That's why as soon as the Soviet Union fell. A lot of places in Siberia emptied out because all of a sudden you're allowed to move. And people are like, I am not living in Siberia anymore. It's yeah. terrible. <laughs> it's freezing. Well, it's cold happening now in time. China, too. It's happening now in China. Yeah. Like the, the, the folks who live in the countryside, they want to move to the cities where there's jobs, but they're being prevented. Like, no, you need to stay poor and destitute. You don't get to come compete with everyone else. Yeah. They're like illegal immigrants it. within their own country, which is bizarre to an American. You know, it's like, what do you mean I can't move to a different state? Well, in China, you can't. You're, you stay unless you get permission to move. It's crazy. So it's late. So I guess for me, and I want to hear your your final thoughts too, but for me, reading through this, I actually enjoyed it. And I probably read a lot of this when I was in college, but I I, I guess I was delighted by the fact that it was actually really short. So uh, yep. you could read it in a couple of hours if you just really you know cranked on it. But um, I what I enjoyed reading... He, they, Marx, Engels, they really are identifying real problems that contemporary problems that we have today, you know, problems that were then are sort of the, many of the problems that are, that are happening today. I mean, thankfully it's nowhere near that degree, you know, and again, if we, if we would have been alive in 1848 and seeing some of the, the treatment of workers and so forth, I mean, I'm sure you and I would have been upset as well, uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, ready for revolution, but, um, fast forward to today, I think the the application is not not very clean and so i i see now even more clearly why why there's been a move away from class struggle to sort of like race and identity struggle so that's on the one hand and then on the other hand his their their solutions are just they're not persuasive and they've also been tried in the real world more than once and failed and so i guess i can appreciate where where they're trying to come from without really thinking that they were on the right track as far as how to figure it out. What are your final thoughts? Well, yeah, a few points in the book where they, they talk about, Oh, we're going to abolish this, but you know what? Only the bourgeoisie have it anyway. So you're not losing anything. If you're a proletarian, you know, with property, with uh, civil rights, with a few other things that they talked about as being just bourgeois ideas or, you know, bourgeois property. Well, I think what we ended up doing is kind of what I was thinking in the book as I read it, I said, well, why not, instead of destroying it for everybody, like that's one way to be equal, we just all have nothing. Why not try and spread out those good things so that everyone has a piece? And they, t- I mean, they would say that's what they're doing with community property, but community property, of course, is uh, who gets to decide what gets done with community property, right? 
this was supposed to lead to a stateless utopia, but it always it just means a different person is in charge of everything. You know, he 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 looks different than the guy that used to own it, but he's the same. He's doing the same thing. Yeah. So, I mean, there were there. I think there were flaws to be seen at the time, and uh, with the benefit of 160 years, 170 years, we know this doesn't work. Um, it's never worked. But yeah, I I think the problem they identified the, the solutions were all wrong but the problem they identified is one we're still struggling with and that's, that's really why this is still relevant and, and i'm glad we yeah. read it and and you know like you said my my version was the, the copy i had was 40 pages so if you want to read this it's uh it won't take you long yeah. some some of the paragraphs are a little dense and make your head hurt but it's it's not much to it uh, i'm glad we read this instead of the three volumes of test copy towel <laughs> uj all right Good enough. That's Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Catch us next time.